Good morning. Great to be together as always. Such a privilege to meet here as the family of God. It's a, as, it's a bit of a bittersweet moment for me, really. It's been such a pleasure to serve this church as an elder for the last eight years. And uh, I love to do it. Vicky and I do it as a family endeavor. Where are you? Oh, there you are. Hi. Love you. Good to see you. Um, but as Matt was saying, this is an opportunity for Vix and I just to do uh, a number of things that we ordinarily wouldn't do, change the pace a little bit, spend some more time with God, and hopefully just to kind of strengthen the, the depth and the strength and, the, and to reinforce our kind of walk with Jesus so that hopefully we might be able to kind of transmit and transfer that onto others in the church. If you want to know more about what we're going to be getting up to, just come and grab one of us at the end of the service. We'd love to talk to you about that. Great, this morning's uh, Next Generation Sunday. We've obviously celebrated some of that already, and I'm going to be speaking on that subject now. Um, I wanted to start by uh, just kind of uh, telling you a little bit about myself. So I've, I've lived around the world. I've lived in a number of places, and uh, I've seen lots of different things and experienced lots of different things. And in this room, I'm sure that will be a familiar story as well. It's difficult to put into words sometimes quite how beautiful things are. And I was thinking about this. For me, the, um, the late afternoon red sun setting from Table Mountain in Cape Town. It's one of my most beautiful sights. And uh, I, saw, I once saw the kind of the early morning flow of the Mississippi River as it kind of threads its way through the southern states. The tidal roar of that is a stunning thing to see. The mighty Victoria Falls as they come over the top of the cliff and hit the bottom and spray back up again. You can see it for miles, and you can hear it for miles. They call it the smoke that thunders. Beautiful. Seeing my children born, taking their first breath of life, watching as uh, Victoria walked down the aisle um, on our wedding day, the glitter of the sea from the Jurassic clifftops on a, on a sunny day. Sometimes the sheer richness and beauty of life takes your breath away, and I'm sure we've all had moments that we can refer to like that. But amongst all of these spectacular sights and experiences, one of the greatest among them all for me, one of the most spectacular, mysterious, beguiling things I've ever experienced is this. It's us. It's a beautiful tapestry of humanity, young and old, survivors of trauma, business people, students, people who've overcome life-threatening diseases, people who are still battling them now, people who can lift heavy weights, people who might struggle to lift themselves up out of a chair, people from Africa, people from Central America, South America, engineers, nurses, this unlikely melting pot of humanity all weaved together with a solitary purpose, and it's to express the deepest longing of our heart. We worship God. The church is an unlikely miracle in an age where everything's up for grabs, where truth is seen as increasingly relative, a kind of a shifting scale where commitment to one thing is often seen as a rejection of the freedoms of everything else that's on offer. That we come together like this week after week, that we serve one another, that we love one another, that we take a few hours out of a Sunday morning and celebrate a group of children um, graduating to the next stage of their Christian education, that we express our innerness outwardly, loudly. Tell me if you know any other organization in the world like that. The church is an amazing miracle. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm a realist. Church community can also be difficult at times. 
And that's because we're a family. We are God's family. And like any family, church can at times be full of the sorts of dynamics that you'd find in any family. Tensions, tears, awkwardness, highs, lows. And that's because this amazing gathering of people, this family, is also made up of broken and imperfect people. And therein lie two of the great mysteries of the gospel. Number one is that God builds his church on us. It's amazing. Ordinary, imperfect men and women whose only redeeming feature is that we are known and loved by God. We've done nothing except be known and loved by God, and he builds his church on us. And the second point, relationship with God is freely available to everyone in this room because he is the epitome of love. And he opens his arms to the entire brokenness of humanity, and he says, come. Join the family of God, all of us, everyone. And this is only possible because Jesus made it so on the cross by ripping down the barrier between broken mankind and perfect God. And so we can now be saved by faith in Jesus. That's all it takes, which ironically also comes to us as a free gift from him. It's beautiful. And then he says, don't stand at a distance. Come in. You're not now just a friend or a distant relative, but we become sons and daughters of the almighty God in his own family. Just pause and think about this for a moment. As if it isn't the most stunning offer in all of the universe. All of us who've said yes to Jesus are now the family of God. It's who he's most passionate about. It's where he chooses to dwell. It's the family by which the whole world is meant to come to know about him. And here's some good news. Not only has he rescued us and given us salvation and adopted us into his family, it's who he's coming back for. And you're all invited. Let's look together at a short passage of scripture. If you uh, want to follow along, uh, it's from Ephesians 3. There's church Bibles in the pouch in front of you, but it'll, it'll come up on the screen as well. It's just a short, simple verse, but it has huge implications for us. So we're going to look at uh, Ephesians 3 on page 1175, and we're going to focus on uh, verse 20 and 21. Let me read it. Now to him... This is God the Father. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us, to him be glory. Where? In the church and in Christ Jesus. When? Throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So we're celebrating this morning. To him, God the Father, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus from generation to generation until the generations find their end in eternity. It's beautiful. Now, the glory of God is, is far too rich and complex a concept to fully grasp in the time we've got this morning. But I want to offer this as a starter for 10 because we've got to start somewhere. And it says here that the glory of God is on display amongst us. The glory of God is the infinite value, the very worth of God. It is the very luster of his own perfect character, the bright sum total of all the blended brilliances that compose who he is, displayed perfectly through Jesus. It's the whole point of creation. 
When God displays himself through creation, it says in the Bible that all of creation declares his glory. It's the public display of the infinite beauty of God. The whole earth, everything created, is therefore full of his glory. And when we accept that truth and worship him in response, what are we doing? We are said to be giving God glory. It doesn't, he doesn't need us to make him more glorious. Don't misunderstand me here. He is glorious. But what Ephesians 3.21 tells us is that his glory is demonstrated through his son Jesus, and it's demonstrated here in this community of people. To him be glory in the church from generation to generation until the generations reach their fulfillment with the return of Jesus. And then the glory of God will go on eternally when we join with him in eternity and through our words and our songs and our actions and relationships acknowledge his glory forever. Isn't that good news? And so part of what it means for God to be glorified is for us to glorify him through our own lives to shine out the very radiance of God so that the world might look at us and say, God is glorious. And that they might come into the presence of God and the family of God and bring others into the worship of God. That's the very real and very humble and very glorious mission of the, of the church. If you're a Christian this morning, don't ever in your life feel purposeless. Just don't allow that to be. Your job is the most important job there ever was. You are to point to the eternally glorious God, besides whom there is no greater glory, nor ever has been. From generation to generation, he is glorious. From generation to generation, he goes on public display to the world through his people. This is Next Gen Sunday. We've just celebrated the next generation and pray that uh, they will become a generation of Christ followers themselves. Now, I've been looking at the word generation, and among the many dictionary definitions of the word generation, we see this one. The average period, generally considered to be about 30 years, during which children grow up, become adults, and begin to have children of their own. And that's broadly what we see represented in this room. We broadly have people representing three of these 30-year blocks. So we'll have people in the room aged up to 30, we'll have people kind of in between aged 30 to 60, and then we'll have people older than that. Now, sociologists would tell you that within these broad definitions, there are more kind of granular subdivisions. And I think it's probably worth looking at those for a moment, because in order to relate to and transfer the gospel from one generation to another, it's helpful to understand how that generation works, how it talks, and what we should learn from the generations that have gone before us. Now, for the most part, in this room, there are about five or six of these subdivisions, and there's much debate about where the generational divisions lie. So it's, it's not an exact science, and the defins, definitions for each one are rough and ready to say the least. But I have a slide here just to kind of broadly explain, in summary, how most sociologists nowadays see this. So if we can have the first slide. So what you've got here, moving left to right, is uh, what is known as the builders. The builders generation born 1925 to 1945. You've got the baby boomers, many of those in this room today, born between 1946 and 1964-ish. Then you've got Generation X, that's my generation, I'm slap bang in the middle there, born between 1965 and 1979. You've got millennials, born 1980 to 1994. And then you've got Gen Z, Gen Z. 
born between 1995 and 2010. And I've just kind of highlighted a few things to help to um, explain some of the generational differences. There's a signature product generally against each generation. You can nod to yourselves as you remember the advent of the car if you're a builder, or the television if you're a baby boomer. My generation, it was the PC, the smartphone for the millennials, and for Generation Z, fascinating, wearable technology. We see this with Google Glasses and um, iWatches and Apple Watches and things like that. If you, if you want to know what Google Glasses are, you can speak to Nancy afterwards. She'll tell you how hers work. <laughs> Landmark events, if you're in the builder generation, World War II, baby boomers, it would have been space travel. That was a big thing. The fall of communism is what I remember most clearly as a defining uh, moment in uh, my upbringing. 9-11, if you're a millennial, Generation Z, the global credit crunch, perhaps. Attitudes to finance, this one's very interesting. So the builders, no credit, cash only. Isn't that right, Liz? <laughs> Good. Baby boomers, credit. Generation X, life stage debt. Okay, well, let's get through the parenting years and we'll indebt ourselves to get through that and then we'll work it out. Millennials, lifestyle debt. I like that, I want that, I'm going to finance that. Generation Z, we don't know yet, but it's likely that this will be the first generation who don't know any other way than lifelong debt as well. And then on the next slide, we've got the deepest fears. Builders, where's the nice postman with my pension? <laughs> Boomers, Trump is messing with my pension. Generation X, will I be able to afford a yacht with my pension? Millennials, what's a pension? Generation X, Z, ah, low battery. <laughs> of course, these are just characters, just a little bit of fun, but, and generations are inherently more diverse and complex than what I'm allowing for here. But it's interesting to note that in this very room, there might be people who were born during a time when Nazi teenagers were flying overhead in simple aluminium planes, dropping bombs, may not have had a flushing toilet in their house, may have had their food rationed by the government. And on the other hand, a generation who've never known a time when the buzz of technology wasn't constantly on. All the time, able to communicate their thoughts to millions of people around the world, buy stocks in a Bangladeshi startup, order a Chinese takeaway from the Ashley Road, all from this little micro device in their pockets. All in moments, all without perhaps even leaving their chair. Some of you might be doing that right now, for all I know. Now, on the one hand, all of this is, is just so much sociology and anthropology. But on the other hand, having an awareness of this kind of stuff is actually vital if we're going to function as God's family in this generation and transfer the gospel to the church in the next generation. We need to be able to speak each other's languages and know the differences and relate well to one another. And we need to be able to relate well to those outside the church as well. King David surrounded himself with um, mighty men from all the tribes of Israel when he ascended the throne. In 1 Chronicles, it tells the story and it lists the names of all the tribes that sort of comprised this king's cohort. Pages and pages of lists. And tucked away in these lists, it reads, 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32. From the tribe of Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. These mysterious men of Issachar, they were uniquely gifted somehow to read the time and then to develop a strategy based on that information for how the people of God should proceed. Men who understood the times and knew what the people of God should do. The world is changing incredibly fast and we'd be fools to consider what, not to consider what these changes mean for the next generation of Christ followers. 
In the next 20 years, we'll see huge steps, I assume, taken in things like artificial intelligence and robotics, with all the ethical questions that that poses. Driverless cars, genome sequencing for the masses, personalized medication, unique for your body, drugs designed to help you to fight cancers and other diseases. We're already well out of the starters blocks with things like nanotechnology and wireless electricity, which just blows my mind. What will the transfer of and the stewardship of the gospel look like for a generation being shaped by those sorts of things? We should think about these things. It's important. Now, in a moment, we'll come on to the timelessness of the gospel, but we do need to keep thinking what the Bible says and then try, like the men of Issachar, to understand our own times. With each generation, behaviors change and attitudes change and methods change. And so we need to think about the wealth of resources within the church in this generation as we steward the gospel and be thoughtful about the next. Those precious children we gave thanks for this morning will very soon, sooner than we like to think, be leaders in this church, we hope, charged with the very same responsibility of protecting and transferring the gospel into the next generation, and on and on it goes. In the climax of God's story with humanity, we see that one day, believers of all generations, from all generations, will be together with renewed bodies in God's very presence. The first generation of believers will unite with the last generation of believers and every generation in between in the eternal generation of worshippers. And I want to just look at a few ways in which this is important for us. Firstly, God thinks in generational terms. Generation, uh, Genesis 1, the opening chapter of God's story with mankind, says that he made mankind in his own image and then he told them to multiply and fill the earth. Shorthand version, I have chosen to replicate myself in you, my creation. You, Adam and Eve, your job, you're my image bearers in the earth, now go and create other image bearers all across the nations and all of mankind. Do this forever, generation to generation. If you're not a Christian this morning, what God's offering here is to pour out his glory and his power into your life so that you might be in an unbreakable relationship with him, that you might bear his image, that you might go into the world and create more image bearers like him as well. Revelation 21, the closing passages of the Bible, talks about the people of God, the God-fearers and followers in every generation, being raised to life and dwelling with God in a renewed and restored creation forever. As a father myself, the high calling to which I aspire in my everyday parenting is that my children, my, my next generation, will see a glimpse of what God the Father is like. It'll be a very poor and broken reflection, but I want to demonstrate his strength and his tenderness, his discipline, his mercy, his judgment and his compassion, his forgiveness and his embrace. And this is really important. If you are ahead in the faith of anybody else in this room, that's your job too. One generation to the next. That's why God constructs his family the way he does, in a generation-spanning way. Older men, let me speak to you for a moment. Be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, solid in faith and in love and in steadfastness. And in so doing, demonstrate to those younger than you in the faith how they should live godly lives, how they should love Jesus, how they should love the church and love their families and make a mark for him in the world. And be gentle and considerate 
Younger men are growing up in a confusing, busy, complicated world. That's why I'm talking this morning about timeless characteristics rather than just temporal techniques. Older women, also, be temperate, be controlled, self-controlled, dignified, model what is good. Train the younger women how to live out the gospel in their workplaces, in their families, in their marriages, in their friendships, in the world. Younger men, millennials, zennials, generation Zers, listen to us older guys in the faith. We fought some battles. We're still fighting them, just like you are. I know this. Every young man wants to be affirmed by a father or a father figure. It's how we're made. It's why YouTube is awash with men teaching you how to make things, fix things, build the things that they have. You should ask us more often. We're in the heat of the battle of life. We're raising our families, managing finance, leading in the workplace. We've got the scars. The smell of gunpowder is never too far from us. We've probably got 20 more years of history of seeing God at work than you. Let us encourage you in your journey with our journey. And love our kids. You are who they look up to. Lead them well and tell them and tell the world how important it is to live and even be prepared to die for a cause like ours. And have opinions on climate and on culture and on politics and voice them to the powerful for the glory of God. And all of this obviously applies to the younger women in the room as well. And middle-aged guys, men and women of my generation, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Peggy Williams, where are you? You just wave at me for a second. Peggy served this church as an elder's wife while battling a life-limiting disease in a wheelchair. Faithful, prayerful throughout, and God healed her disease. It's a remarkable story. Ask her about it sometime. She still faithfully serves the church, praying for us. She serves tea and coffee on a Sunday, quietly, faithfully. Richard Last. Richard was a deacon and a church administrator for many years dating back to the 1970s. Give me a wave, Richard, so people know who you are. He was part of a leadership team that saw some of the seismic changes that moved this church forward so that we might know it today in the way that we do. Over 40 years of faithful ministry, this guy speaks into my life daily with his observations on the Bible. Still serves. Him and his wife, Jackie, now lead our midweek service for older people, preaching, caring, loving, pastoring. No fanfare, just faithful service, generation after generation. Les Burridge, Norma Oddie, Mick Gregory, quietly giving into and sowing into and serving the church in ways which go unseen but are vital to the functioning of the family and so many more as well. John and Sue Hosier at the back there. Can you guys wave at me for a second as well, please? Thank you, John. That was a very enthusiastic wave. (laughs) These guys have served and led churches around the world for 50 years. John and Sue model marriage and godly living. They model it to Vicky and I. They pray like giants. I've been so inspired by their prayer life so as not to want to even try and compete. And in terms of generational gospel legacy, they raised Matthew in the gospel, who has led and served churches around the world for a quarter of a century. And together with Grace, Matthew has raised Nancy and Felicity and their other two daughters in the gospel. And I hope I'm around when the next generation of Jesus-loving hosiers arrive at Gateway. Generation to generation. (laughs) Uncle Rich is waiting. (laughs) 
As we further the cause of the gospel, let me ask you this. Who's going to be the next Peggy Williams? Who's going to be the next Richard and Jackie Last? Who's going to be the next John and Sue Hosier? Who's going to replace me and Matthew and John and Paul and all the other gateway elders in time to, in time to come? Who's going to speak truth to our political power figures? Who's going to love our children in the next generation? Who's going to welcome guests at the door? Who's going to show the hospitality of the gospel to people at the tea and coffee bar at the back? Generation to generation. It's in his plan, and that's why it comes out in ours. Next thing I want us to think about in thinking generationally for the gospel, there are consequences for not doing it, and they're not good ones. The book of Judges in the Bible is, is cyclical. It tells the story of a young Israel following this kind of depressing, repeating cycle of trusting in God and then failing to trust in God and then falling into idol worship and then getting themselves into all sorts of trouble and then crying out to God and then God helping them out of trouble and then the pattern returns. And on and on it goes for about 12 or 13 generations. In Judges 2, we read about a generation, the Joshua generation. These guys inherited the promised land from God after their parents had been wandering in the desert for 40 years. It says that this generation served the Lord all their lives. Verse 10. After that whole generation had died, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord because they served idols. 1 and 2 Kings, Isaiah, the minor prophets of the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all tell stories of generations falling away from the worship of God, doing what they thought was right in their own eyes, and facing exile from God and, and destruction. It happens. It has always happened. For the sake of God's glory, we have a responsibility to fight this battle, and we must not, we dare not lose, lest they say of our children, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served idols. We cannot let that happen. The Canadian Bible teacher Don Carson says that we are never more than a generation or two away from apostasy or oblivion. That's a sobering thought and should propel us and compel us to action. Number three, we need to keep the gospel central. In my job, I get involved in lots of discussions with people about uh, different ways in which to best grow the church and to reach people for Jesus. And I've read some really wise authors on the subject too. There's much debate about this. And people will say church needs to become more relevant. Young people need such and such to make a decision for Jesus. And older people like this sort of thing. And that's great. That's what I'm saying this morning. We, we must be wise about how we present ourselves in a way that is culturally and contextually accessible. But we do this at our peril if we don't maintain the centrality of the gospel. Because old and young, rich or poor, the gospel is good news for everyone. And more than that, Romans 1.16 tells us that it's the power of God that brings salvation to all that believe in it. If that's true, which it is, it's the best strategy we have in a world that just won't shut up giving us good advice for good living. The gospel is, listen up, the power of God. What for? For the salvation of all. It doesn't say that Hello Magazine is the power of God. It doesn't say that YouTube instructional videos can give you life. The gospel is alive. It's bristling with God's power. It's waiting to unlock hearts and give people the answers to their deepest need. You, you can't read a verse like this and come to any other conclusion. If you believe in God's power to save then the telling of what Jesus has done for us, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the best 
chance we've got. Our challenge is to think of creative, helpful, culturally relevant, contextually understandable ways to do that for our friends and our neighbors and our family. Central to what we teach here at Gateway is that the gospel isn't just one part of some complicated puzzle that helps to get you started in the Christian life. God's plan is not just to lead you to the gospel and steer you right past it once you've said yes to him, but it's to move us more deeply into it. The gospel is the story of how all of life's circumstances, at every stage and in every situation in your life, come under God's kingship. Martin Luther said, and I'm going to paraphrase this, that beneath every sin and behavioral problem that we have, there is an idol, something that we're believing in more than God's supply. And beneath every idol is a disbelief in the gospel. That's an ouch. Luther is essentially saying here that the, the heart is an idol hunter, constantly looking for things to worship, to desire over God, a better job or a better car or a better spouse and so on. The truth is that humanity is in trouble without Jesus. The problem is that without him, we will worship these idols and will ensnare ourselves in carnal pleasures all the way to hell. But the good news is that the gospel can help to deliver us from this kind of idolatry and slavery. The gospel doesn't just save you once. It saves you time and time again. Because in it we see, in a thousand different ways, a God who has throughout the generations met the needs of his people and rescued us from oblivion. I personally choose not to cheat on my taxes. I do other stuff wrong, but I choose not to cheat on my taxes, and I choose to give to the work of the church as Matt encouraged us financially earlier on. Because in the gospel, God tells me that all I need for my material provision comes from him anyway. And I can't serve two gods, it says. I can either serve God or I can serve money. And I know what I want to choose. The gospel is timeless. It's timelessly effective. Whether you're a Bronze Age farmer turning a field with a shovel all your life, or you're a Generation Z biomedic, the human condition is the same. We all want to go our own way and worship ourselves in every generation. Good news is that the power of God in his word is as effective and strong as it's ever been and will be in every generation. The gospel is not some kind of a pit stop on the way to heaven. It's our permanent place of residence. And our job is to understand accurately and communicate its multifaceted, multi-problem-solving, salvation-sustaining truths in ways which are comprehensive and accurate and faithful. Come and find salvation this morning. Whether for the first time or the hundredth time, the gospel response is always the same. Jesus has made you right before his Father. And his Father will withhold no good thing from those he loves. And then finally, and for me this is crucial, we need to lead people to the awe of God. We wrongly sometimes assume that if we give someone a leaflet or mention that we're praying for them or advise them against bad decisions, that we've done all that we can. This is a mistake. Psalm 145.4, we've read this a couple of times this morning already, says this, one generation commends your works to another. Note how it doesn't say that one generation simply tells of your good works to another. There's a Hebrew word here, it's yesabach, which means shall praise. So you might read it, one generation shall praise your works to another, which gives it a very different level of power and meaning, I think. 
We are meant to praise God's work from one generation to the next. If God is glorious, which he is, if he's responsible for all of creation, which he is, if he's the one who created the planets, breathed the first life into humanity, led Israel out of slavery, parted the Red Sea, raised up Israel with all its kings and prophets, gave the law, saved the people when they broke the law, gave us the holy scriptures for good living, gave his only son to die for us, us, on an awful Roman executioner's cross, poured himself into us, united him to us through Jesus, calls us the apple of his eye. The most important thing to him is one day coming back for us so that we can live death-free, sin-free, disease-free in his very presence. If these things are true of God, which they are, if he is the sum total of all the brilliance and holiness and perfection and kingship that he says he is, oh my word, shouldn't we praise him? Shouldn't we praise him one generation to the next? Shouldn't, we, shouldn't that praise echo through all the generations? When we tell young people about Jesus, we need to be very careful not to make it about mere Bible entertainment. But we need to speak in a way that ignites a life-shaping awe of God's glory and name it as the thing for which they should live. When we speak to men and women, inside or outside the church, we need to speak from our hearts and our personal experience about the relational almighty God of the ages, the ancient of days, the king of kings who came to earth as a humble carpenter on a mercy mission to rescue you personally from the myriad distractions and idols that consume the heart. We need to call out the inherent indifference of hearts to the very source of our being, the very giver of life, we need to point upwards to the one true Savior, the only Savior, the King of Kings, who rides a white horse, trailing all the armies of heaven behind him, whose name is faithful and true, always has been and always will be, through every generation and into eternity. The church, the people of God, us, is the most important human agency on earth and always has been. It exceeds the United Nations. It exceeds Parliament or Senate. It exceeds the International Court of Justice. It is simply the most significant agency in creation because in it and through it, through us, unbelievably, the glory of God dwells and is put on public display and made known to the whole earth, generation after generation, forever. Amen. We're going we're gonna to pray now. I'll just invite you just for a moment just to close your eyes. John's just going to play a little bit of music. And just find a moment's peace in this busy, distracting world. Just let the peace of God fall on you. Jesus told a story about a son and a father. And the son goes to the father and he says, even though you're not dead yet, I'd like my inheritance, please. And the father, who had every right just to boot him out the family, said, 
Okay, here it is. That father figure is meant to represent our father, God. And the son takes the inheritance and he goes off to a faraway land and he, he just blows it. Alcohol, women, fast cars, whatever. He just blows it. And he ends up in the most appalling, homeless, penniless situation. He ends up working with pigs, which for a young Jewish boy, I needn't have to tell you, would have been the least dignified thing he could have done. And he, he ends up wishing he could just eat the pig's food because he has nothing. He's blown his father's inheritance. And he says, this is crazy. I'm going to crawl home and I'm going to speak to the father. And I'm just going to say, look, I'm really sorry. I'm not expecting anything, but would you just chuck me in with your slaves and servants? Let me serve you for the rest of my life in the field. And maybe you can give me some food at the end of each day. I don't deserve much more than that. And he crawls home and he comes back to the family estate. He must have been full of fear and shame and guilt and dread. Imagine, he's going to have to tell his father, I've blown the inheritance. I've, I've done nothing good with it. And he starts to walk into the estate and the father sees him from afar and he says, quick, my son has returned. He doesn't turn his back on him. He runs to him and he embraces him. And he goes to the cupboard and he takes out the best robe and he cloaks him in it and he gives him a ring and he says, get the best animal. We're going to sacrifice it, slaughter it tonight and we're going to eat it and we're going to feast because the son of mine who is lost is now home. He's found. Maybe this morning you feel a little bit like that son. Maybe you feel like you are, you've blown it. You're not good enough for the father. You've, you're just too far. You've done too much wrong. Maybe you're a believer and you feel like the son. Maybe you think, I'll oh, just keep on blowing it. Maybe God feels distant from you. But it says, the most important word for me in that entire story is the word quick. The father doesn't wait for the son to come up. He runs to the son. He says, quick, my son is home. The father is quick to forgive. He's quick to love. He's quick to invite you in. He's quick to open his arms. He's quick to clothe you in white clothes. He's quick to give you the ring on the finger to invite you into the family. He's quick to want to dine with you and commune with you this morning. And if you feel like that's you and you want to respond in some way, I'd love to pray for you after the service or Matthew can or anyone else you recognize as a leader here this morning. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to invite you into that. But for now, let's just stand together. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing. We're going to give glory to God. King Jesus, I thank you so much that you perfectly perfectly radiate and portray the glory of God. And in spite of that, it was you who came to earth for us, died on a cross for us in the most inhumane way so that this, our sins might be taken away, that you might rip down the barrier between us and the Father. Now we might be accepted and loved by the Father, given a place of honor in the family. Jesus, as we sing now, receive your glory. Father, receive your glory. You're so worthy and we love you. Amen.